Our text for this morning is Joshua 1, verse 1 to 9, which we have already read. And in response to the proclamation of God's word, we will sing hymn 64 and do so standing if you are able. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the life of faith is never still. It's made to be moving. Faith always presses forward. It doesn't turn back. It doesn't stand still. It doesn't give up, but always presses forward, onward. Further up and further in, as one author likes to write it. When we turn to scripture, the exhortation to press on in faith can be found almost everywhere. It's the whole character of the book of Hebrews as an encouragement to, to persevere in this pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem, to persevere against hardship, persecution, against sin and immaturity. Exhort one another daily, the author writes, as long as, as long as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And again later in chapter 6, verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary teachings of Christ and go on to maturity. Or we can look to the example of the Apostle Paul and what he writes about his life in Philippians 3, verse 13. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Onward and upward, reach, reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is the call of faith, and this is the commandment that the Israelites received on the shores of the Jordan River. We will look at our text under the following theme this morning. The Lord calls the next generation to courageous faith. We will see three things, the new era, the same promise, and a clear obligation. So first, the new era. In the beginning of our passage, the beginning of our passage marks a new era for God's covenant people. Now I know that when we think about the history of the church, we often think in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are very good, very biblical reasons for thinking in this way, because it places Jesus' life, and especially his death and his resurrection, at the very center of salvation history. But it's helpful also to recognize that in the Old Testament, there are very important stages in the history of God's chosen nation and we have come to one this morning. This is clear for three reasons. In the first place, our passage begins a new book. And not just a new book, but a new division in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Joshua continues the story of Israel and picks up almost seamlessly where the Pentateuch ends. The Pentateuch is what we call the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch ends with the book of Deuteronomy, a record of the farewell speech of Moses. At the end of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are assembled on the plains of Moab near the eastern shore of the Jordan River. By this time, they had come out of Egypt, spent at least a year at Mount Sinai, and 40 years wandering in the desert. 
Under Moses, they had subdued the area between the desert and the east bank of the Jordan, the nations of Moab and Ammon. But they had not yet received the full inheritance from the Lord. In fact, they hadn't even entered the land that God had promised to Abraham, the land of the Canaanites, the land that lay between the Mediterranean Sea on the west and the Jordan River on the east. God's promise to Abraham was still unfulfilled. This is where the book of Deuteronomy ends and the book of Joshua begins, with the people standing on the very threshold of the promised inheritance. The second thing to see is that this is an entirely new generation of Israelites. These were not the same people who had come out of Egypt, but their children. The previous generation had fallen to the judgment of God when they rebelled against him by refusing to enter the land according to his command. You can read about this in Numbers 13 and 14, when the first spies that had been sent out into the land returned to make their report. They confirmed that the land was exceedingly good, just as the Lord had promised, but they also despaired when they saw the strength of the people. The majority consensus was, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. We read that in chapter 13, verse 31. They lost their confidence in the great power of God. They were afraid. And fear drove out faith in the hearts of those who had every reason to persevere. And because they refused to trust in him, the Lord condemned all men of fighting age, 20 years or older, to die in the desert over a period of 40 years, so that none of the men who had seen the glory of the Lord and the great miracles that he had performed in Egypt would see the promised land. In Joshua 1, 40 years have passed. And who do we now find? A new generation of Israelites, specifically a new generation of fighting men. A new generation of fighting men who had not seen the great miracles of the, that the Lord had performed in Egypt. Men who therefore must proceed on the basis of faith alone without the benefits of personal experience. They had certainly heard stories about the great miracles of God from their parents or grandparents, but they had not yet experienced it themselves. All this only makes the rest of what we read in this book more remarkable. As we read chapters two, three, four, and on and on, we find countless men willing to risk their lives against overwhelming odds because they trusted in the Lord. But how can it be that this generation proved faithful even when the previous generation was faithless? It is only by God's love and power. Brothers and sisters, true faith in the heart of a covenant child is an astonishing and most wonderful work of God. When the older members among us reflect on their Christian life, they have greater reason for perseverance and trust. They have come through trials, difficulties, hardships, loss. They have wrestled with doubts and fought against sin. Many of them can look back and see the evidence of God's fingerprint on their life and know without a doubt that God was working in some remarkable way to strengthen their faith in him even through the difficult circumstances of their life, through the bitterness of loss, a terrible tragedy, or a time of hardship. But a child in the faith, a new believer, can only believe. The third, and perhaps the best reason to find in the beginning of this book, 
a new era in the history of God's people is given directly in our text. And we read that in verse one, Moses, the servant of the Lord, had died. The great leader of God's people had died. Moses was a great man. He was a man who had brought a difficult people out of Egypt. There was none like Moses for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, we read in Deuteronomy 34, verse 11. All the leaders of Israel had died. Aaron the high priest had died the year before. The 70 elders had since died. And now Moses himself, as the servant of the Lord, finds rest from all his difficult labor. The end of one era, the beginning of another, because the Lord would give his people a new leader, Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua was the personal servant of Moses, we read in verse one. This is a pattern we find often in scripture. The servant becomes the leader. The one who is first humbled will be exalted. The one who has learned obedience later leads. Or as one author writes, those who are fit to rule have first learned obedience. Joshua was faithful and brave and fiercely loyal. We find his name early in scripture already in Exodus 17 as one of the men who led Israel in battle against the Amalekites. He was one of the spies sent to explore the land of Canaan, the only one to join Caleb in calling Israel to trust in the Lord and to advance against the Canaanites. The Lord was with him and had prepared him for this very moment, giving him a spirit of courage, keeping him close to Moses so that he might know his doctrine and his way of life take the same measures, walk in the same spirit, and carry on the same work. Moses had died. The previous generation had passed. But all this time, God had been growing a new generation and shaping a new leader to face the challenges of today. This was a critical time. Many dangers threatened the well-being of this nation, the very same dangers that exist every day in our pilgrimage of faith the danger of looking back, as the Israelites were prone to do, back to Egypt, clinging to a life of slavery that deceived them with shallow enticements, with food that did not satisfy. The danger of giving up, forgetting the promises of God that made them different from the world and joining themselves to sinful nations around them. And the danger of standing still and settling for the shadow instead of the substance the foretaste of covenant blessings experienced on the east side of the Jordan rather than the abundant life promised on the west side. But that's not faith, brothers and sisters. Faith forgets what lies behind and reaches forward to what lies ahead. Faith presses us on toward the goal. This is a critical time, and so there is a strong sense of urgency in our chapter, a call to action. Verse two, now therefore arise, go over this Jordan. This is the beginning of something new, a threshold moment in the historical experience of God's people. When the next generation of God's people would embrace his covenant promises and face the challenges of today and tomorrow, further up and further in. Moses had died, but God's work continues. God had started this work with Moses but he would finish it with Joshua. 
He brought out his people out of Egypt with Moses, but he would bring them into the promised land with Joshua. He always finishes his work. Brothers and sisters, there is a wonderful harmony here in the relationship between Moses and Joshua and what both of these leaders later represent in the New Testament. The work of Moses had prepared the people of Israel to receive their promised inheritance. He had brought them to the very edge of the promised land. Moses pointed the way to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, but it was Joshua who would actually bring them into the land. Joshua who would win their battles. Joshua who would give them their fields and their vineyards and their cities. Joshua who would lead the way into life and life abundant in the good land that God had given as a free gift to his beloved people. And all this foreshadows with incredible clarity the perfect work of our Savior, our Joshua, our Jesus. Just as Joshua finished the work that Moses began, the gospel of Jesus Christ finishes the work of God's law and brings us into our full inheritance. The law is necessary. It always comes before the gospel. It opens our eyes to our miserable condition and our slavery to sin. And in this way leads us to repentance. The law is necessary, but we are not saved by the law. We cannot satisfy the law. Because of our disobedience, the law can never bring us into our full inheritance of a life with God. To bring his precious saints into their full inheritance, God begins with the law and ends with the gospel. We read in Romans 8 verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But Jesus, our Joshua, has done for us what the law of Moses could not do. He justifies us, makes us righteous before God. He sanctifies us, makes us more and more like him through the work of his spirit in us. He preserves us. He wins our battles. He secures our inheritance and appoints to each of us our portion. He leads us into eternal life with God. He is the captain, the commander of our salvation the one who leads the way into the promised inheritance. Therefore, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our Joshua, the one in whom we can place all our confidence and follow to the very end. The Israelites on the east bank of the Jordan fixed their confidence on the man Joshua, as the Lord's appointed servant. But Joshua was just a man. How much more then can we place our confidence in Jesus Christ? Moses as a servant of, of the Lord died. Joshua as a servant of the Lord also died. Before them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all servants of the Lord who had received the promise died. And again, after them, David, the servant of the Lord, died, as we read in Acts 13, verse 36. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But Jesus is the living one, who was not prevented by death from continuing his work. He is the living one, as he declares in Revelation 1 verse 18. Fear not, I am the beginning and the end, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He goes before us into everlasting life and leads us into our inheritance. Brothers and sisters, our assurance is grounded in God. Generations come and go, but God remains the same. He is faithful to his promise, and he will complete his good work of salvation that he has started. The very existence of the book of Joshua is a wonderful testament to the covenant faithfulness of God. The previous era ended in disobedience and rebellion and punishment, but the Lord did not reject his chosen people. The disobedience of one generation does not frustrate his plans for the next. The disobedience of one generation does not nullify the promises that he has made to his covenant people. His promises endure forever. And this is our second point, the same promises for a next generation. As we continue in our, in our text, we see that the Lord encourages Joshua for his task by applying the same covenant promises now to him personally. We can identify four distinct promises, all very familiar. The, and the first one in verse three, the promise of land. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. The boundaries that follow in verse four encompass the land promised to Abraham and are nearly, nearly identical to the borders given to Moses in Deuteronomy 11, verse 24 and 25. This land was a gift from God to his people. He is the Lord of all the earth. He sets the boundaries of the nations and gives each their inheritance. And he has given this land to his people. It was theirs. And this was how Joshua was to think about it. It belonged to them. The sovereign Lord had given it to his people. In the second place, in verse 5, we read the promise of strength for the day. No man shall stand before you. The land belonged to Israel by divine right, but it was not yet in their possession. It was full of other people, strong and impressive kingdoms who did not acknowledge the sovereignty of the Lord and would not so easily submit to the claim of Israel. And so Joshua and all the Israelites were instructed by faith in the first promise to press the issue even with the point of a sword. And thirdly, this is the promise of strength, we read in verse 5. And that is joined closely with the promise of success in verse 6. You, Joshua, shall cause this people to inherit the land. The outcome was assured. The Lord has spoken. It was as good as done. The battle won. Through Joshua, the people would receive the land. As the appointed leader of the people, Joshua had inherited the role and responsibility of Moses. And if he had any reservation in following after such a great man as Moses, he is immediately reminded of who it was that made Moses such a capable leader. And fourth, one final promise that stands at the very center of all the rest. 
In verse 5, the Lord says to Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The promise of God's presence. This is the crowning covenant promise. The same promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7, given to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 3, given to Jacob three times, first at Bethel in Genesis 28, verse 15, and confirmed in Genesis 31 and 46. I will not leave you until I have accomplished what I have promised you. The same promise given to Moses when he was appointed, and now also given to Joshua. The same promise given later to David and Solomon, and if we skip ahead very fast through the pages of scripture, to the apostles in Matthew 28 verse 20, at the beginning of that great new era in the history of the church. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Look, listen and learn, brothers and sisters. Here's the point. Those who go where God sends them have God with them wherever they go. Brothers and sisters, it is very encouraging to reflect on the courageous faith of those who have gone before us. Very few things can strengthen your conviction, <clears throat> like reading a biography about an ancient martyr or a brave, <clears throat> brave missionary. Such men and women serve as shining examples of the Christian faith. But there is always, in, in reading such stories, the subtle danger of discouragement. It can be discouraging to discover that your courage or your faith doesn't measure up, that the flicker of faith in your own soul is like nothing compared to the flame of a great martyr or the raging wildfire of a brave missionary or even like the steadfast warmth of the faith manifest in your parents or grandparents. But this way of thinking forgets who it was that gave these men and women such remarkable faith. Our Lord Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith and of the faith of those who came before us. Just as he strengthened them in their time for their work, we know that he will strengthen us today for ours. Because this same, this same promise comes to us. We read that in Hebrews 13, verse 5. For Christ has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Four promises packed into four verses. This is what the Lord gives to Joshua to strengthen him for his dangerous task. The same old promises given to a new generation. Brothers and sisters, this is what faith lives on. This is what faith feeds on. This is how we are sustained through this life of sorrow. This is what gives us courage. This is what keeps us going. Promises, the promises of God. Not explanations, not reasons, not speculations or curiosities. The clear promises of a faithful God. I've heard it once described like this. When a little boy breaks his arm, playing outside and must sit for hours in the emergency room and undergo all kinds of tests, how, how helpful is it really when the doctor finally comes in with a handful of x-rays and pins them up one by one, slowly, methodically, explain what it is and how it all happened. 
This bone is connected to that bone, which is connected to that bone. And that bone is fractured here and this one there, which probably happened because of this or that. All very interesting and instructive. But how much does it really help? What that little boy really wants to hear is something like, listen, son, rest now, and in six weeks you'll be playing baseball again. He needs a promise, assurance from the doctor so that he can patiently wait out those six long weeks. Beloved, the promises about tomorrow are for today. For the encouragement of our faith today, faith is sustained by covenant promises and so encouraged, it presses on, further up and further in. Now, one final point we read about, the, we hear about the clear obligation. After the promises, the Lord also gives Joshua a series of commands. The command that stands out in our passage is one that's repeated three times, with added emphasis each time. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Certainly, strength and courage were needed. Joshua and the people were called to a terrible task, dangerous, perilous, one, of, one full of heart-wrenching sorrow, glorious in the manner of men at that time, for, for war was glorified, but tragic when seen by the light of God's perfect law. The Lord would require from his people the strength of their hands and their legs, their skill with the sword and the spear, their armor and their helmets. They were called to battle. Joshua would lead them into battle. And so it is surprising to see in verse 7 how closely this command to be strong is connected with what follows. You might have expected the Lord to say something like, be strong, train your arms to swing a sword, your eyes to aim a bow, your legs to stand fast, or be strong, get horses trained for war, fashion weapons of iron, chariots of bronze, or be strong, study the best battle strategies, devise the best tactics for war. But in light of what was sure to come, these seem important, but they are not truly what matters in this endeavor. They are not the important thing, the essential thing, the needful thing. What was required of Joshua is given here in verse 7. Be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Read the law, study the law, meditate on the law, every day, day and night, train for obedience. As a battle commander, Joshua would be very busy with many things. If anyone had a good excuse to put down his Bible, it's the man God sends against the enemy with spear in hand. But not so, brothers and sisters. Not so, not even for Joshua. The word of God must be written on his heart and live in his mouth. And why? So that he might do it. And that's what we read in verse 7, being careful to do all that it says. The meditation mentioned in verse 8 is not theoretical speculation about the law, but a very practical study. The book of the law in verse 8 is a clear reference to the book that Moses completed at the end of his life, which included everything we read in Deuteronomy and Numbers. 
the laws pertaining to warfare in Deuteronomy 20, the laws concerning the administration of justice in chapters 16 and 17, the laws about marrying female captives in chapter 21, the instruction to completely drive out all the inhabitants of the land in Numbers 33, the allotted boundaries given by the Lord in Numbers 34. Very practical stuff for Joshua, all very relevant to the war he would wage and the land that he would eventually give to the people. You see, Joshua was a man of great power and absolute authority, a man who had received from God a mandate to destroy whole nations of peoples, to do things which were to him then as they are to us now, equal parts dangerous and unpleasant. He was a man with authority, but also a man under authority, subject to God's law, God's will, God's direction. He was a commander, yes, of the armies of God, but he was second in command. And what an encouragement, brothers and sisters, it is to every leader and to every Christian who discovers that he or she is only second in command, ruled by God's word, and so second in command over the people entrusted to your care, second in command over the life that you will live. You see, if Joshua was faithful to this command, he would be a gift to God's people. They could be confident that they had a leader who had submitted himself wholeheartedly to the authority of God's word. They could trust that in whatever decision was made, whichever direction they would go, Joshua was doing God's will and God's work and would therefore be blessed by God with good success. And they could follow him courageously into every battle. Joshua was faithful, brothers and sisters, one of the few men from the Old Testament commended for his faithfulness. The Israelites had received in him a good leader. But we have received in our Lord Jesus a leader that surpasses all the rest, one who has submitted himself with perfect obedience to God's law, one who has proven himself to be faithful to his Father. No one knows God's law better than Jesus Christ. No one knows God's will better than our Lord and Savior. He is the law made flesh. We can follow him wherever he leads, every step we take in this world. And he leads us now through his word, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, and John 5, and, and by his spirit, as we read in John 15, his word is relevant to your life, your walk of faith in this world. So make your study practical and follow his direction. Husbands, if you submit to him, your wife can with true confidence submit to you. Fathers and mothers, if you demonstrate obedience to him in all things, your children will learn obedience also to you. Precious children, if you hear his voice, he will lead you faithfully through all the trials and hardships of life. He is faithful like his father. The more you search the scriptures to find him there, the more and more your desires will be conformed to his desires. Your decisions will be directed by his will. Your perspective on this life will be illuminated by the brightness of his glory. A rainbow, for example, becomes much more beautiful for what it means. And fourthly, you will be made strong for the battles of today 
and tomorrow. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, the apostle writes to the Ephesians as he presses on them in their struggle against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on his truth, his righteousness, his gospel of peace, the helmet of his salvation, the sword of the spirit. Trust in his might and he will sustain you in the battle against sin, evil, despair, sorrow, hardship, and darkness. Follow him faithfully and you will be like him, enjoying victory after victory until pressing on to the last day, you will receive in full your promised inheritance. Not one word of all the good promises that God has made will ever fail. The obligation laid upon Joshua was simply to claim the promises of God. This was the word of the Lord that came to Joshua. I have called you, commissioned you, and commanded you. I have given you my promises. I have assured you of my presence. I have strengthened you and encouraged you. Have I not commanded you? I will help you. Be at your right hand and your left. Now go. And this same exhortation comes to us through Hebrews 3 and 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe the gospel. Claim today what he has obtained for you by his precious blood. Live today with yesterday's promises for tomorrow. Persevere in the faith. Hold fast. Be courageous. And this courage to forsake this life and live for Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we press onward and upward, further up and further in, to life, life eternal and abundant, in the presence of our God, who is always faithful. Amen. <laughs>